All right, let's go ahead with our first question. So your explanation of the four judgments is extremely helpful. Wondering about the timing of the fourth, which you indicate is after the millennium, correct? Our church teaches that there is a judgment, even though it is the healthy version. And so because of the timing, when one, upon cons considering that there must be a determination about who will be going to heaven or not before the second coming. So, and then it says, thank you for your explanation of the four judgments, the recent Sabbath school class. I have studied the uh, all and printed the materials and heard the seminar present presented on the subject of your, on your website. I find it extremely helpful uh, and rejoicing about the healing reality in our hearts. I would like to clarify the timing of the fourth judgment when considering it or a determination apparently needs to be made on who or is or who is not ready to go to heaven. So the fourth judgment, uh, you are correct, it is my understanding is the great white throne judgment, what ha which happens at the end of the thousand years. And that is not a judgment that determines who goes to heaven and who doesn't. What determines who goes to heaven and who doesn't is the actual condition of the people themselves. They, when we, when we choose to accept Christ and experience his healing, we are transformed such that we are able to live in God's presence. Those who hardened our heart against him, when Jesus comes in his unveiled glory at the second coming, it says the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. The righteous are not destroyed by the brightness of his coming. It's the same brightness. And so it is not a legal, forensic, judicial review of facts and records. It is self-determining by the condition of the people. Those who have been restored to love and trust, and Jesus unveils his life-giving glory of love and trust, we thrive, love in it, and are invigorated by the rivers of fire that come out from his throne as described in Daniel 9, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands live in this fire. But those who uh, hate truth, who hate love, who love lies, who love selfishness, uh, cannot tolerate the life-giving glory of God, and they are consumed in that uh, fire at the, at the second coming. And that is the distinction or the differentiation. It becomes self-evident. Those who can live there, live there. Those who can't, don't. You get a little glimpse of this when, um, when Nadab and Abihu took unauthorized fire into the sanctuary um, back, I think it's around Numbers chapter 10 or something like that. And, uh, and it says, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And the next verse, Moses sends the cousins in, and they drag them out, quote, still in their tunics. So this is a fire that consumed them, but it did not char them or burn them or burn off their clothing. This is not the fire of combustion. And so the, the, the differentiation of who goes to heaven and who doesn't, the judgment that determines that is the first judgment, which is our judgment of God. Do we judge, do we judge him trustworthy and thereby open the hearts to him? and receive salvation, or we judge him untrustworthy, and thereby put our trust in legal mechanics or other systems of appeasement and sacrifice or falsehood or rejection of God altogether, and therefore harden our hearts against him. That judgment determines who's there. What reveals who made that judgment is at the second coming when the life-giving glory of God is revealed, and then at the at the great white throne judgment that is also revealed again when the fires of Christ's glory go down through the city, out through the gates and over the, over the land and, and those who are outside the city again, uh, suffer in that, those flames of truth and love. Uh, 
Uh, I'm a graduate. I'm a, in a graduate school program at an Adventist institution, learning about implicit implicit bias, systems of exclusion, racism, multiculturalism, and social determinants of health. And my duty as a physician to the DEI initiative to promote equity in healthcare. It's a part of a Christian physician formation course, but it feels very politically driven, secular, apart from the scriptures that we read at the beginning of each lecture. How can I, how can a medical program expect to produce good physicians when the messaging seems to be that we are part of the problem? Our biases get in the way of good care, especially in the treatment of minorities and those with low socioeconomic status. I feel as if I am not allowed to be a human and must instead tread lightly and gain complete control of my subconscious self while also juggling the care of my patients. First off, you, understand, you need to understand reality. Take your mind off of the political intrigue and focus it on Jesus Christ. You have to know Jesus first, and you have to know his design laws for reality first. If you don't understand Jesus and his design laws for reality, then you're subject to all types of philosophies and sophisticated lies that are being permeated. Second, under your question, how can a program expect good physicians, uh, produce good physicians when they're doing this messaging? I don't know about the individual instructors you have, but I can tell you the, pers- the people that are, that are promoting this DEI and critical race theory stuff, they do not expect to make good physicians. That is not their goal. They're not actually expecting harmony in society. Their goal is not to have equality amongst people. The goal of this entire thing is increasing injustice, abuse, and discord because the entire philosophy is a Marxist philosophy to critically tear down and destroy the institutions and pillars of society that make a society strong so they can overthrow it. So the real goal here is to destabilize the healthcare system so it provides really bad healthcare so that people become dissatisfied with it and become uh, uh, and as they become dissatisfied, they'll be more likely to rebel, replace it with something else. That is the real agenda here. So don't ever buy into the lies. And, and of course, how do they do it? By telling you that this food that is poison is actually going to help you be healthier. And if you take this poisonous fruit, you'll be actually wise and you'll know good from evil. and You become like God. So take this, this destructive thing, whatever it might be. And that's what this whole DEI agenda is being foisted on us by very powerful elites that control the uh, educational institutes of America to teach philosophies that are actually corrosive to to mind, body, and, and, and human society. It's all fraudulent and it's a lie. The real, so the real question you should be asking is why are Adventist institutions colluding with it? And that then gets you a deeper question that you can ask, what, what, what version of God's law do they do they teach and are they actually teaching the true eternal gospel is going to the world or have they uh, fallen into a system of imperialism and teaching an imperial dictator God who has to be appeased by blood payments and so forth and then you'll discover that in fact within the system of Adventism there are actually two different Advent Ad- Adventisms the, just like 2,000 years ago, there are two different Judaisms. The Judaism that Christ lived and taught, which is the truth, and the Judaism of the church leadership, which killed him. And you're going to find, if you look for it, that there is a true 
gospel message given to the Adventist church for this time, not to create a sectarian elite group, but to be evangelists to the world, to teach all people the principles of God, to prepare the whole world for the second coming of Christ. That group of people, which we believe were part of this movement, which was never supposed to be sectarian. And then the sectarian group, which had becomes very elitist and very prejudicial and very legal in their in their application, just like the Jews 2,000 years ago who killed this Messiah. And so I think if you look for that, you might find and understand why the institutions are doing the things they're doing. When the Bible talks of Christ bearing our sins, 1 Peter 2.24, what does that ultimately mean? Yes, or bearing our sins or sin, so thank you for putting that in. Because the uh, the uh, the Greek there can be sins and or sin as in sinfulness, bearing our sins or sinfulness. Uh, this uh, person goes on, yes, he was dealing with the temptations of the fallen biology, not fallen mind, and bearing the consequences of Adam's sin. But could it also suggest that he carried our sinful mistreatment upon himself without harboring any animosity toward us? I know he did bear with our sin toward him, but is that what the Bible means when he uses phraseology? I think it's the total... Comp the total complete aspect of that. So I would not dispute what you've suggested here. He born the sin condition with all of its foibles and temptations, the temptation to feel anger, the temptation to feel fear, the temptation to, to uh, act in those ways towards others. And you see that in Gethsemane and at Crucifixion Weekend. And he bore with the evil, sinful mistreatment, the betrayal of uh, someone close to him, the uh, verbal assaults, the, the physical abuse. He bore with all that as well. And yet he chose to act in love, grace, and mercy. And so, yes, it would encompass the entire thing. And thus, thereby, he condemned it all, condemned all the sin, and established the righteousness back in humanity. Do you think we should avoid everything that comes out of Hollywood? You know, I am not a person who very often will be caught into extremes of absolutism. Uh, for instance, everything that comes out of Hollywood requires interpretation unless we take you literal. And if we say we should avoid everything that comes out of Hollywood, what about a person who was born in Hollywood? Should we born, avoid that person, not let them socialize in our church? Well, you'll go, I didn't mean that, of course, but that, but that's what the word everything means. Everything means everything. And so, so as soon as you say everything, then uh, does that mean there's nothing that can come out of Hollywood that has any good? And and therefore, we, they set up these, these rules that we want to live by rather than understanding the principles. And I would say, no, it's better to understand the principles. And we should avoid everything that violates God's design, laws, that's unhealthy, that's destructive. But anything that has the ring of truth to it and that actually is promoting the gospel message, regardless of its source, we should embrace. In John 1930, uh, it says, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit uh, since... Uh, since he was God, also would he not have died if he didn't give up his spirit? Meaning he took part, he took part in his death since God cannot die. So first off, the word translated spirit is panuma, from where we get pneumonia or pneumatic. It means, and it's translated in multiple English words. That one Greek word is translated as spirit, panuma, spirit, panuma, ghost. In some versions, he gave up the ghost. Uh, and in some, uh, and and if you remember the story when Jesus is walking on the water, and the disciples thought they saw a ghost, that's the panuma. They thought they saw a spirit. Uh, they thought they saw something disembodied. That that can mean that. Uh, it can mean wind. The wind blows wherever it wants. Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John three. The spirit blows wherever the spirit wants. But you can see its work. Panuma, wind. It can mean breath. 
as in breath of life, life energy. He gave up the breath, the breath of life. Uh, and therefore, some versions say that he expired because when you expire, it is a dual meaning. <sighs> That's called an expiration. You're expiring out your breath. But when someone dies, it's often called he's expired. He no longer lives. And so he gave up his last breath. And so what it means there is he gave up his last breath is what it actually means. Literally, his physiology died. Now, to your question, could his physiology have died if he did not voluntarily surrender? And no, it couldn't have. That's what Jesus said. No one can take my life with me, take my life from me. I give it up freely. Giving up his life to die is not the same thing as suicide. He did not act to end his life. He acted. Here's his action. He acted to stop or to not use power available to him to prevent him from dying. There's a difference. He did not access divine powers to kill his enemies. He did not access divine powers to turn a rock into bread. He did not access divine powers to stop death from taking him. But but not turning not turning um, a, a rock to bread is not the same thing as um, you know uh, killing oneself. He didn't kill himself. And so at the cross, they, he was killed by evil people at the instigation of Satan, but he refused to use power because, and why did he do it? Because his death at the cross was the means whereby he would destroy the infection of sin and restore God's design law in the humanity that he assumed and reveal the truth and expose Satan as a liar and secure the unfallen worlds and their loyalty and so this was the only means whereby he could reverse what sin had done to this creation and save his universe. My granddaughter goes to a non-denominational private school. In their theology class, the teacher was teaching them that we go to heaven when we die. My granddaughter questioned it, but the teacher came back with, quote, Bible proof, unquote. How should these kinds of situations be handled? Her father goes to the church affiliated with the school. Well, I would actually have to know what was the quote unquote Bible proof, but I would recommend um, getting our magazine, um, The Wedding of Christ to His Bride, Preparing the Church for the Second Coming. You can download a PDF from our website. You can read it online at our website. You can, if you have a U.S. postal address, request um, copies and we will ship them at no cost to you. But have yourself and your granddaughter read that magazine, and I think it will become clear the answer, and she can then dis differentiate because the Bible actually talks about human beings having three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And you're talking about different parts going different places, and the Bible talks about different parts of the human being going different places when we die. The spirit returns to God who gave it, it says in Ecclesiastes. That's the breath, the breath of life. So depending which text was used, you need to understand which part and what it means for the whole person in order to be able to answer effectively. And this, this, um, this magazine has a section in there which explains all that in detail. So I encourage you to become familiar with that. And if that doesn't, then, then uh, email in or, or ask again the clarifying questions. The uh, question says, we must get out, uh, this is a quotation of Testimonies of Volume 4, page 89. We must get out of lukewarm condition and experience true conversion, or we shall fail, we shall fail heaven. What is lukewarm condition? Can someone change between the two conditions? So this is a reference to the message from Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, 
to the Laodicean church. And the message to the Laodicean church says, um, these are the words of the amen, the faithful, true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that they are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of the or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit you out of my mouth is the Greek word emeo, from where we get emesis, and it means to vomit, not to spit. It means you're making me sick to my stomach, and I can't stand it. Okay, so that's what the text, the quote you quoted is referring to, this lukewarm condition. And the lukewarm is not specified other than I wish your deeds were hot or your deeds were cold. So it leaves it open to interpretation. My interpretation of what lukewarmness is and how do you get lukewarm, and this is why I get this interpretation, how do you get something lukewarm? By mixing hot and cold. If you mix both hot and cold, you get lukewarm. And so the lukewarm condition, some would say, is a is a corporate church that has some hot people and some cold people, and the overall effect on the church is the church isn't doing nothing. They're just lukewarm some, and they argue back and forth. The hot and cold are constantly arguing and infighting and political intrigue in the church, and thus they never get anywhere. And he'd rather the church be hot or the church be cold. Uh, I take it more on an individual level, and they uh, might be hot for their passion to enforce the religious rules, but they are cold in heart because they have no love for others, and thus they are very religious like the zealots that Paul talked about, but their their religious heat is cooled down with cold-heartedness, thus they're lukewarm. And, uh, and then others would interpret as they are they have the truth and they feel so good about themselves like the Jews. We are rich and, and we are in need of nothing. We're spiritually rich. We have the truth. And thus uh, they have this richness of hot truth, but they have cold hearts and they don't really help their fellow man. This is the idea that they're not actually living uh, the, the love of God in their communities for other people, whichever way you interpret it. It says, in addition to having protective roles, do our angels have love for us? As far as I know, they certainly do. They, if they, every being who is not in rebellion against heaven has God's law, which is the living law of love, written upon their hearts, and they love God and others more than self. So I would absolutely expect Gabriel and the angelic host to have love for God and love for other beings supreme in their hearts, including us. Doesn't, uh, let's see, doesn't Lesson 11, yeah, I'm going to have to read that and think about that. So, um, the Adventist health message was at, developed and took off at the opening of Battle Creek Sanitarium, 1866, the writings and messages um, for the most part was before a full understanding of the everlasting gospel that was being presented at the conference of 1888 as a physician. How do you think, or do you think it had any impact on how the health message was delivered and accepted? I'm not sure I understand the question that's being asked. Uh, truth is unfolding, whether it's science truth 
whether it's truth about healthful living, whether it's truth about gospel truth, whether it's truth about God's character, truth is unfolding. And what was known in 1866 were health principles. Uh, and as those principles unfold, we're going to add and apply and update and advance uh, those more. And same with uh, the uh, gospel. Since 1888, we're advancing it more. I'm not sure I understand the question between the two dates, though. So if you could clarify that. Thank you all. And uh, let's just have a word of prayer and we'll go. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you've done in Christ. We ask that you will fulfill your purpose, restoring your law of love into hearts and minds. Help us be effective this week in sharing this gospel with others and show us how we can open avenues to take it to more and more receptive souls in this world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.